0: our brains are meant to first and foremost is for survival purposes right it's it's to keep you alive because if you're not alive then you're dead so the problem though is we're in that part of the brain for majority of our adult life even though we're not in an actual life-threatening scenario the brain will perceive these uncomfortable emotions as a threat because there's research that shows that emotional pain can be just as painful as physical pain
1: This is Getting to Yes, the podcast with leaders from all walks of life, exploring their successes, mistakes, and lessons learned in influence and persuasion. Getting others to say yes, and then taking an insight or two to help them achieve even greater things. Have you ever wondered how the brain makes decisions? Or why some people's brains are less effective at decision making? Or Why some people procrastinate and never make a decision? These are the types of questions that my dear friend, Dr. Eugene Choi, has been exploring over the last years. And this is the reason why I wanted to have him on the podcast so he could unpack the neuroscience behind decision-making and how to activate the powerful executive brain to transform your life. Dr. Eugene is a sought-after transformational mindset coach and board-certified clinical pharmacist on a mission. To help heart-centered leaders operate at the highest levels of performance, intelligence, and communication. He's the host of the Neurohacking Podcast, a prolific author and filmmaker with over 23 million views on his short films. Dr. Eugene, welcome to the show. Thanks
0: for having me. I'm super excited to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When you mentioned that you're a neuroscientist, I knew I had to get you on the show to share your wisdoms. And in my introduction, I alluded to some people's brains being less effective at decision-making and getting the most out of the executive part of their brain. You have a very powerful story from your time volunteering in Brazil that illustrates this very point. So why don't we start there with the interview?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I don't even remember what year it was, but many years back, it's been over 10 years now. um, I was in Brazil, and it's one of the most violent cities in the world. And more than 70% of the kids there don't live past 21 years old because of the gun violence that occurs. A lot of these kids get involved with drug trafficking. So I remember the first time I went there, I drive up this hill and you just start seeing guns everywhere. You see these like little kids flying kites and there's pistols holstered in the back of their pants. And the first day I got there, one of the things that happens often is the Brazilian SWAT team will come in and start shooting and going into a, a, a all out, you know, gun war with the drug traffickers and they're shooting at each other. And I was in the middle of a gunfight. My <laughs> first day there. And you know, my first instinct is to run inside. They're telling us to get under the windows. You're hearing the gun, the bullets ricocheting off the windows and all that. And I remember the 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 gunfight is is quieting down and then me and one of the music teachers there peek out to see if it's done. And then right in the corner, uh, out of the corner, one of the drug traffickers pops out and points the gun right at us. And I remember my heart like jumping into my throat. Like, you know, you don't know how to react in that moment. And I just froze and I didn't know what to do. And, you know, because we weren't the SWAT team, they didn't shoot us and they just walked by and then we just ran back into um, the building. And, You know, when you look at moments like that, it's a moment where you're reacting without thinking. I'm not sitting there thinking like, what should I do, right? You're just kind of frozen, petrified, and I just ran away right after. And that was a big realization over time, like looking back when your life's actually in danger, it's interesting, isn't it? Your brain cannot think. It has to react without thinking. This is why if you're walking down uh, on a hike and you see a snake in the corner of your eye, your body will jump away without you telling your body to jump. And I found that fascinating because what I found through my research is our brain is in this reactive mode without thinking, not because your life is actually in danger, but because the amount of emotions we experience on a daily basis that are frankly uncomfortable, right? Stress, frustration, anger, anxiety, and it prevents us from accessing this powerful executive brain like you were mentioning earlier, which is where your decision-making skills come from, your critical thinking, your problem-solving skills, your creativity, and the list goes on and on about what this part of the brain is able to do. And majority of our adult life, I found that we're not accessing it. (laughs) And we're just in that reactive mode, kind of like when I was in front of that guy holding the gun to my face.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so most people, when you ask them, well, you know, do you suffer from impaired brain function? Most people would probably say, no, no. But (laughs) As you point out, When you really understand how our daily emotions and a lot more past trauma, et cetera, that we can go in next affect how your brain is actually in the soup of emotions and things exposed, it's actually a miracle if you are able to access your executive brain function and think, because there's so many things that can derail you from solid decision-making.
0: Yeah, uh, sorry. Side comment: I never actually said it that way, but that's actually true. I have I've yet to use it on someone because it'll probably offend them. It's like, did you know you're suffering from impaired brain function <laughs> for a majority of your adult? But it's actually scientifically true. Um, it's because our brains are meant to first and foremost is for survival purposes, right? It's it's a survival state. What we were mentioning earlier, and that's the priority. It's it's to keep you alive because if you're not alive, then you're dead. So the problem, though, is we're in that part of the brain for a majority of our adult life, like we were talking about earlier, is even though we're not in an actual life-threatening scenario, the brain will perceive these uncomfortable emotions as a threat because there's research that shows that emotional pain can be just as painful as physical pain. So I think that was the big aha for me is just realizing that and just realizing, oh, yeah, I can see why that's true because of the amount of stress I feel every day. The amount of mm-hmm. frustration I feel every day, the amount of fear or anxiety I feel every day. Wow, my brain might perceive that actually as a life threatening scenario because it just doesn't feel good. And I think that's the first formal step is like this process of just becoming aware. I had no idea. And it just, I went down that rabbit hole of things to become more aware of that I realized I finally connected the dots. Wow, this thing I thought was a conscious choice I made, a conscious decision was not conscious it was reactive. I was doing it without thinking. I thought I was doing it consciously, but I wasn't. And just going down that rabbit hole of all the things that I do were actually just programming. It was reactive to a certain fear I was carrying. And that's how I led my life in reaction.
1: Yeah. I heard you say at one point that if something doesn't feel good, it likely pushes your brain into that survival mode, into that immediate reactive mode that you you're not able to access your creativity, your your proper executive function, et cetera. So if you look at it through this lens, then you would argue that you know the vast majority of what we all experience in life as adults specifically is is really impairing brain function. So how does this fight, flight, freeze actually show up in daily life. You know, you, you had obviously the example of a gun being pointed at you or the example that really resonated with me, I'm deathly afraid of snakes. So just you talking Mm -hmm. about it gives me this visceral reaction of like, I got to move away from, from that. But if you are, let's say in business life, you know, you're a business leader, where do these things show up in daily life?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, <clears throat> and this was a thing that was really interesting for me. Um, but most of the time, we're not even aware of it. And you see, in life training series very obvious like you said it's a fight that's the only thing your survival brain knows how to do it's fight flight or freeze okay so a fight for example in a life-threatening scenario you're going to try to defend yourself maybe you pick up a weapon and you fight back whether it's an animal that's about to attack you or a person that's trying to harm you a flight is when you run for your life like i did when i had that boy uh, after the the drug trafficker walked away i ran for my life because i didn't want to risk being uh, you know getting shot or it's freeze. That's the first thing that happened to me when I had the gun pointed at me. That reaction is analogous to playing dead. Possums, for example, is a famous animal that does that because their predators like their food alive. It's your brain's way of going, if you pretend to be dead, maybe you won't get killed. So that's what happens when we're in like a shocking scenario. You're you're trying to play dead and and try to survive that way. However, in everyday life, remember if we're in the survival state for more or less about 70% of our adult life on average, It's fight, flight, freeze, fight, flight, freeze all the time. A lot of people just don't know what it actually looks like. So that's where the first awareness I bring up is what might fight look like in everyday life? It's things like this. Some of the more obvious ones are, you know, you're you're in the East Coast. I'm from the East Coast. Road rage. Someone cuts you off, now you're upset because your ego got hurt a little bit. So now you feel the need to fight back without any consideration of the harm you might be or danger you might be putting the cars around you. You've tried to fight back, that's a fight response. Or if you've ever been in an argument, anyone who's been in any sort of relationship has experienced argument. that's a fight response. You might've gotten your feelings hurt. So you feel the need to defend yourself and fight. The more subtle ones for a lot of business leaders is are things like this. It's the need to prove yourself or to someone or to yourself. Uh, Overworking, people who work really hard to prove yourself. That's a fight response. Uh, Perfectionism, people-pleasing is a fight response. And these are things that most people don't even realize that they're fighting. Hustle culture, that aspect that you have to work your butt off all the time, otherwise you're not worth much. And most people don't realize that that's a fight response to some sort of insecurity you're carrying to begin with. So I give examples here because I think the fight one is a big one in a lot of leaders, right? The need to be right, the need to prove yourself. I remember one client was sharing with me when I was talking about the fight flight freeze response, this guy had everything you could imagine, multimillion dollar business, nice house, everything, right? And he's in his sixties now and he's going, why am I still experiencing anxiety and stress? And he realized my whole life I've been fighting and I asked him, okay, for what? That's a great realization to have. He's like, well, I needed to prove to people I was better than my older brother. He was an NFL football player. In high school, my football coach told me that I'll never be as good as him. So he spent his whole life fighting to prove that he was better than his brother because the belief, the insecurity, was that he's not good enough. So he accomplished a lot, fought to get all these accolades, made more money, status, and he was still feeling unhappy because the fight response will always, always lead to a lack of fulfillment and burnout 100% of the time. Here's this guy in his 60s coming to that realization. And this is a very important thing for leaders because I'll give another example. I remember this other guy I was working with, brilliant man. He went from rock bottom to building uh, you know, Inc. 5000 fastest growing company. And he was debating with me. He's like, no, you need survival sometimes, right? He's like, you need the fight response because that's what got me to where I'm at today. And I'm like, well, unless your life's actually in danger, the fight response is usually hurting you than helping you he's like and he started debating he's like you don't understand i hit rock bottom my second wife left me because she was (laughs) cheating on me i had to pay over two thousand dollars a month in child support still my first wife was cheating on me too that's why that didn't go well and i hit rock bottom i hit zero he's like that was the moment i had to keep my head down and my shoulder up and i had to bash through brick wall after brick wall to get to where i'm at today and he was very convinced of it and i said okay that's fair i can see where you're coming from but as a thought exercise, this is not about what you should have, would have, could have done, but as a thought exercise, what if, if you trained yourself to be in an executive state where your brain gets out of tunnel vision, where you're paying attention to more information, you, it, what gives you the ability, it's what gives you the ability to just, even if it's just for a moment, you put your head up and your shoulders down, and maybe all of a sudden you realize these brick walls that you felt you had to break through were only three feet wide. Meaning, there's probably a lot more options to get to where you want it to go, which usually is the case. Because a lot of leaders make mistakes when they're in survival. Because guess what? Your brain literally develops tunnel vision. You can't see the other information around you. It's like if a tiger walks into your room, right now, are you gonna look? Or a snake <laughs> slithers into your room, yep. are you gonna look anywhere else except where the snake is? You're only gonna look at the snake. That's what our brain does in survival. It filters out the rest of the information. This is where a lot of business leaders make big mistakes because they didn't see it because they're in survival. So there's that saying, work smarter, not harder. It's the executive state that helps you work smarter. So And a lot of people struggle with this, the fight response, and they're not even realizing they're in it because some people wear it like a badge of honor. I'm a hard worker, right? I get things done.
1: Just you mentioning some of these behaviors that none of us would really associate even remotely with fighting like perfectionism or comparisonitis or all these other things where your ego got hurt and you have now developed some response that makes you think you have to address this rather than doing the deep work on yourself and realizing, hmm, there's one way to look at it. You know, what if I looked at it another way? And as you said, the brick wall may be only three feet wide, I could easily get around it if I take a step back and and be more relaxed. Exactly. I'm curious about examples around how does flight or, or yes. freeze response show up yeah. in the context of leadership or in business life in general?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So the fight one I dove into a little bit deeper because I found a lot of the leaders have this and they're just not aware of it. In terms of flight, the more obvious ones are things like procrastination. That's why we flee, it's a self-soothing mechanism. There's usually some sort of fear behind it. What if I do this now and I make a mistake? Or what if I do this now and I'm not ready? Whatever kind of thinking process the individual has, that's why we procrastinate and put it off till later as a self-soothing response. We flee from the task at hand. Where it gets a little bit deeper and more subtle is when we start to numb ourselves. And I have to preface this. There's no judgment around any of this. Everyone has their numbing mechanisms, by the way, okay? It's just a way to flee from the emotional discomfort. Some people eat a tub of ice cream. Some people will binge watch television. Some people overindulge in things like alcohol, sex, drugs, to the point of addiction, which by the way, a lot of business leaders flee to work too, by the way. How many of us do that, right? We keep ourselves busy with work to flee from an emotional discomfort that we're feeling, Uh, which is why you might see that classic scenario, right? They're busy at work, but the family at home is breaking apart or et cetera. So that's a flight response is when we begin to numb ourselves. And this is all about just being aware not to judge it because guess what? When you're judging, that's a fight response. It's the same reason why people gossip. It's you carry an insecurity. I try to put other people down to make me feel better about myself. So this is not about judging yourself. Just be aware freeze come manifest in the form of inaction. Uh, It usually happens when you're feeling overwhelmed, like there's too much on your plate and you don't take action or, you know, you wake up in the morning and you don't want to get out of bed. Indecision and inaction is how freeze manifests, where we just kind of stay frozen in place because of the overwhelm, because of that fear. So those are the fight, flight, freeze responses that that's the first and foremost thing is just becoming aware. I tell people to make it a game. Like you see that person get cut off on the road. Oh, there's that fight response kicking in. And that person, oh, he's reacting without thinking. Oh my God, he's driving very dangerously. He's not thinking. I'm saying he, but you know, it could be he or she. <laughs> but yeah. you know what I mean? So that's kind of that's kind of where it's the name of the game is awareness. Cause if we're not aware of our own habitual patterns like that, because we think we're doing it consciously, but we're not. We're reacting without thinking because of the survival mode that we're in.
1: Yeah, and so if you're listening to this and follow what Dr. Eugene is explaining here, you'll realize why I felt saying everyone is probably impaired brain function because (laughs) if you really look at your own personal catalog of fight, flight, freeze, there's something in there that everyone has and you can see, wow, this is really holding me hostage. This is really impairing or keeping me stuck. I can't unleash really the full... A power of my brain, of my processing, about my creativity to bear on my life, on you know enjoying life, having a career, etc. That awareness is sorely lacking. And now that we know, okay, there's awareness. What's preventing people from taking the next step? So once you have awareness, what what's the next step? How do you go from here to there?
0: Yeah, and that's a great question. So what I found is. Here's the good news, that impaired brain function, right? The the reactiveness that we're in so often, it's not because you're stupid. It's not because you're incapable. It's simply because of how your brain got wired, how it gets programmed. Just like a computer can get programmed to behave a certain way on autopilot, that's what happens in our brains. So around the time we're around 35 years old, more or less, 90 to 95% of your brain becomes subconscious. It means it's on autopilot. So just like you don't go down the stairs going, I need to put my left foot out, my right foot out, my left foot, your body can do it without thinking. The next thing we need to be aware of is our brain just has programming. We do negative thinking on autopilot, even though you don't tell your brain to do it because it got conditioned to do that way. Uh, Perspectives you carry, beliefs that you're carrying about things, about life, about money, about relationships, whatever beliefs, perspectives you carry, we have to first just be aware that it's on autopilot. And the good news is, just like you can go to the gym and get stronger with your muscles, we can exercise our brains to get better and better to learn these skills and training to rewire parts of our brain that's not serving us. So that's the good news. And the first important thing I talk about is willingness. So here's what I mean by willingness it's the will. I got to get briefly trained by this amazing coach. Her name's Rhonda Britton. Just to give you a quick context of her story, because it was important on how I came to this realization. At 14 years old, dad. Drove up to the house. They were going out for Father's Day brunch. Their parents were in the middle of splitting up. Mom and Rhonda are walking out to the lawn. Her family's still inside the house. And dad's getting out of the car saying he has to get his coat from the trunk. He doesn't get his coat. Instead, he pulls out a shotgun. Walks over to mom, very upset, blaming her, yelling at her, and proceeds to shoot her in front of Rhonda. Then he points the gun to Rhonda. Mom was still alive, so she's shouting at the top of her lungs, please don't do it. He didn't know she was still alive. So he points the gun back at mom, shoots her a second time, looks over at Rhonda, points the gun to himself, and pulls the trigger. 14 years old, sole witness of a murder, suicide. And you can imagine a traumatic event like that can cause major survival. So how did she fight? She kept her grades up. She thought if she keeps performing, maybe this pain will go away. How did she flee? Alcohol. She became an alcoholic. And she attempted to take her own life three times. Suicide is one of the biggest forms of flee, isn't it? And how did she freeze? Plenty of times she didn't want to take action. She woke up in the morning, didn't want to get out of bed. Yet she turned her life around. She became this famous coach, famous life coach. She ended up with her own Emmy Award winning television show in the 90s, a reality coaching show. And then she's been on Oprah, not once, but twice. And I share this story with her, with people, her story with people, because she said this to our group, and it shook me so much. She said, until you're willing to be wrong about everything you know, nothing will ever change. And I'm highlighting the word willingness. It's not to say everything you know is wrong, right? It's it's highlighting that word willingness. Are you willing to be wrong about what you think is real? Because guess what? Your brain gets so easily fooled into what it thinks it's real. How do you know this? You ever been in a dream? You thought it was real when you're in it? So it shook me a lot because that's when I was just like, wow, this is where willingness is important. Rhonda was willing to be wrong about things like life sucks. I'm not supported. I'm all alone. Bad things happen to me. Whatever kind of thought process we might carry at a programmatic basis based on these meanings we attach to experience in our life. And that's the very thing that helped her access her executive state. And now she's a benefit to society, right? Instead of a harm. So That willingness is important because once you're willing, then you're willing to take ownership. And when you're willing to take ownership, then you're willing to take ownership and get yourself the very thing you need to get the training, the education, the resources, the support that you need to get you to where you need to go. And when it comes to ownership, once you have willingness, then you're willing to take ownership. And what is ownership? This is where I call out leaders a lot on what ownership actually is. And the story I share around that is, I used to say this thing to my daughter. When she wouldn't listen to me, I would say, you're making me so mad. And now that I know a lot about more about the brain and stuff, I'm like sitting there going, how might a little three-year-old girl interpret my words? Number one, she's being told she's making daddy mad. Like she's the cause of someone else's emotions, which by the way is untrue and I'll prove it to you in a minute. And number two, whoa, daddy's mad and when daddy's mad, it feels scary. Therefore, it feels like he doesn't love me. So, therefore, she might start developing a survival, a fear, right? And a survival tactic because she's afraid of quote unquote making people mad. And I'm sitting there going, how might that impact a little girl for the rest of her life as an adult? What if she ends up with a horrible boss that's unethical and overworks her? And because she's afraid of making the boss mad, she goes into survival, people pleasing, right? And she'll just continue working, even though she has to sacrifice her mental health and probably her physical health over time. And you know what really got me as a father? I'm like, oh, my God, what if she ends up in a relationship one day, maybe, maybe with some boy and he's pressuring her to sleep with him. And because she's afraid of making him mad, she'll do it even though she doesn't want to. She won't hold her boundaries because she's afraid of making someone mad because in her brain, that's real. She can cause someone's anger. And that one really got me that too. So to the best of my ability, I'm trying to explain to her, I'm like, baby girl, you can never make anyone mad. The only reason daddy's mad is because of his own fears, his own junk that he's gone through. Because for me, I know it's because of my resentment towards my father I harbored up to that point because he left our family when I was a teenager and I would think angry thoughts. Like if I'm ever a dad, I'm not gonna be a bad dad like him. So my brain's interpreting that experience of her not listening to me as me being a bad dad. So I fight in that moment and I yell and I scream and I try to control her. And all I'm doing to the poor girl is scaring the crap out of her. And disconnecting from her, right? Because in survival, you can't be empathetic. So anyway, so I switched the language from you're making me mad to I'm feeling mad. This is what ownership is. You take full responsibility.
1: Well, it just goes to show you how this programming over the course of our entire life is is definitely pulling a number on you that we're not even conscious about our words and how they- set off this cascade of triggering events. It's like the butterfly effect. You said one thing, one moment that spirals out of into something entirely different. And recently I had one other podcast interview with uh, Majid Mogaraban where we talked about the power of words. And you know, I feel this goes hand in hand that your, your words have power. They make somebody feel something and that causes then their feelings cause certain actions, uh, that then lead to intended or unintended results. And so this whole cascade of here's your words, triggering feelings, triggering action, triggering results Correct. that gets sets in motion subconsciously without you actually being aware of what you're doing, unless you're Dr. Eugene Choi and you're thinking about these things.
0: Yeah. And it's so important because you know, that's when I call out the leader. I'm like, tell me again, at the beginning of this conversation, you told me your team was pissing you off. Is it the team that's pissing you off, (laughs) right? And they take ownership. They're going, no, it's not the team. Something's going on inside of me. Because look, in leadership, one thing you have to understand about survival is imagine you're in a dark forest, right? And you hear a scary noise, potentially an animal ready to attack you. Where does your brain focus? Your outer environment or your inner environment? It will immediately go to your outer environment because it thinks there's a threat. Maybe I'm about to die. The problem is when you're surviving from an emotion, like you're pissed off at your team or whatever, your brain does the same thing. It keeps looking on the outside. It won't look on the inside and what's happening on the inside or whatever meaning you're giving the experience, right? I gave my daughter not listening to me a meaning that I'm a bad dad, even though that's not connected at all. So we attach so many meanings inside of us. This is why the illusion is when you're in survival state and you're feeling a feeling you feel like the thing outside of you is causing the feeling inside of you. Oh, my team didn't perform, that's why I'm feeling bad. Oh, this person said this, that's why I'm feeling this way. But that's the illusion. And when you go into executive state, you're gonna look at both outside and inside. But in survival, you're only stuck on the outside and that's very disempowering and you won't take ownership. You will continue to blame the thing on the outside as the cause of the emotion on the inside. But that's the first thing we have to understand is when you're in executive state, you can see that it's not only the outside. The emotion was coming from your own interpretations, your own meanings you might have given things. This is where misunderstandings, misinterpretation happens all the time. And as a leader, this is very important to understand because why would you want misunderstandings to happen? Miscommunication, lack of connection. So that's, that's one of the things I, that's the um, big aha moment for me is what's going on, on the outside was never the cause of the thing on the inside. And I have to examine the meaning I'm giving it from my inside, like in that inner kind of reflection and we can't do it in survival. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes total sense. You talked about step one being this awareness and, you know, from that awareness state, really examining where's my level of ownership at this. How do I, you know, review or, or think about different things? How do I make my choices? How do I react to certain inputs? How do you reprogram your brain once you have the awareness, once you have that realization, okay, I am I've looked on the inside um, and I can see that it is something in my past or mm-hmm. that that is triggering me? What's the final step that leaders and folks in business have to realize or manifest or implement in order to fully unlock their executive brain?
0: Yeah, I mean, just like you can go to the gym uh, and work out, it's the same thing. You have to do the reps with your brain. This is a lot of internal world examination that happens. Uh, And that's kind of what I've developed trainings in with uh, my leaders, right? I bring them through a training process to get better at this so that they actually start experiencing the results. So it's awareness first, training, right? I I show some more science, some tools, tips and all that. And then the third phase is implementation. Once you implement, you get to benefit, right? Experience the benefits uh, from the results of all the work that you did. So that's kind of what I do is it's, it's part of a process of training where long story short, it's starting to be able to actually experience for yourself what's not true that you thought was true. I think the best way I like to explain it, it's kind of like that plot twist in the movie. You thought the bad guy was the bad guy. Turns out the plot twist was it turned out to be the good guy the whole time, and you can't unsee it now. You can't look at that person the same again. So we need to be able to bring ourselves to this point through the work we do on ourselves and get the support ourselves that we need where something you're believing, you're actually seeing the absurdity of it or you're actually seeing why it's not true, and you're experiencing it not just logically, but emotionally as well as an experience, then that's how you know you're actually rewiring networks in your brain because that's programming. That's probably been there for years, decades in some people uh, around these perspectives that we carry. Um, and we carry lots of perspectives, and a lot of them aren't true. So yeah, it's, it's getting yourself the support you need, and that way like you develop the understanding and the training and the muscle. Uh, to just get better and better at it. Just like you can develop a skill with anything else the more you practice it.
1: Yeah, powerful perspectives. I know you work with a lot of executive leaders with powerful CEOs and also organizations. I know you have an online course in the works. So where can people learn more about um, everything that you have to share? How can they tap into your trainings? If if I'm a head of an organization, and I think this would benefit the people in my organization, what options do people have in working with you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. If you wanna just dive a little bit more deeper into my content, I just offer anyone a free training that you can sign up for on my homepage. It's destinyhacks.co. And I am uh, releasing a course, it's called neurohackingcourse.com. And this is basically where everything I've done with clients over the years, I'm breaking it down step-by-step and I've created a course out of it and you can access that at that website.
1: Yeah, we're going to put that in the show notes. I'm certainly going to be one of the first people buying that course and getting through this because this is what's fascinating to me that as a former engineer scientist like you, I I like to understand how does the brain make these decisions? Because if I do understand what the pathways are, then I can change the inputs and I can be more intentional about the outputs that either my own brain... Is making that i procrastinate less that i'm more in the zone that, that i get past emotional trauma but also as a leader influencing our audience understanding how does the public at large operate you know why can't they access their executive brain you know where are they held hostage and what can i do uh, for them to embrace my mission my causes etc that i can change their life for the better as well so thank you so much for sharing all the wisdoms. It was a powerful deep dive. Love everything that you shared. And uh, with that, I'll I'll let you have the final words.
0: Yeah, I'll just end with a reflective question. And it's this question of how is your relationship with yourself? And I remember a, a leader was once asked a very cliche question about relationships. Uh, it was this question about how do I find my perfect partner? How do I find, quote unquote, the one for me? As if there's such a thing as this one person in the world you can hold 100% responsible for your happiness, right? It's, it's a survival tactic, right? It's if I'm unhappy, I at least want to have someone to blame. Uh, that's where that question's really coming from, if you think about it. And he just asked a powerful question. Would you go out with yourself? And I remember the biggest realization I had about that was, oh my God, I can tell my wife I love her and I do all these nice things for her because I'm claiming I love her. But if I don't have a healthy relationship with myself and love myself, I'm doing it for me, those things I'm doing for my wife. How do I know this is true? When we get into an argument, what's one of my defense tactics? Well, I do this and that for you. Why don't you do this and that for me? So it's just a good reflection question to ask yourself is how is your relationship with yourself? Are you compassionate with yourself, patient with yourself? Do you listen to yourself? Do you get yourself the support you need? Are you your own best advocate? Because chances are, if not, you're already stuck in survival because you can't be empathetic when you're in survival. You want to connect with other people? You got to connect with yourself first. Get aware, find out your own programming, get yourself the support you need and work on yourself. That's a priority.
1: Well, that's an amazing finish. Thank you so much, Eugene, again, for everything you had to share. And for everyone listening, we'll see you next week. I trust this episode was inspiring and that you'll join me for a new episode each and every week. And if you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. And feel free to share it with colleagues and friends. I'm your host, Uli Isalo. See you next week.